The following podcast contains explicit language and movie spoilers. You've been warned. No, seriously, there, there's spoilers and, and foul language. Yeah. Welcome to $20 Ticket, where we tell you how much we would pay to watch Deja Vu. My name is Kerwin, and joining me today is Jason. What up, Jason? Not much. How about you, Kerwin? I'm good, man. What are you drinking today? Ice cold Buena Visa. All right. Also with us is Jordan. What up, Jordan? Hey, Kerwin. How's it going? I'm good, man. What are you drinking? Uh, just like normal, Frosty Guinness. All right. And rounding out the panel today is Bling. What's happening, Bling? What's up, Kerwin? What are you drinking today? I actually don't have anything in front of me. <laughs> That's just being a poor host, Kerwin. <laughs> yeah, I should probably get you something. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want anything? I'll take whatever, man. All right, let's take a break while I get Bling something. <laughs> and we're back. Uh, Bling, what are you drinking? I got a doseki. Thank you for that. Nice, nice. Uh, today we are talking about Deja Vu, uh, released November 22nd, 2006. It stars Denzel Washington, Val Kilmer, Paula Patton, Bruce Greenwood, Adam Goldberg, and uh, Jim Caviezel. It's directed by Tony Scott and distributed by Buena Vista Pictures. Let's talk about our experience. Jordan, what's your experience with Deja Vu? You know, I saw Deja Vu uh, probably back in 2009 or 2010. It'd come out on DVD at the time. From what I can recall, which isn't much, it was an okay movie. So I was actually looking forward to seeing it again. Uh, Jason, what about you? Yeah, I don't think I saw this in theaters. Um, I saw it on DVD. I think I rented it once. And uh, I remember enjoying it. I uh, rewatched it again for this podcast. But I, I remember the other movie that was out around this time. I think it was Out of Time that no, Denzel No, did. it was Inside Man. No, there was something else out of time where he was like looking for money and it was down in Louisiana too or in maybe Florida. There's another movie that came out around this time. At the same time? Yeah, but it wasn't it wasn't sci-fi just like this at okay. all, but it reminded me a lot of that. So And it was Denzel? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I'm trying to think of another Denzel cuz I know Inside Man came out the same year. You guys don't remember the movie I'm talking about? Yeah, it's a 2003 Out of Time with Denzel. Yeah, yeah uh, so I think I hadn't seen either movie, yeah. but then I had just seen Out of Time. Mm. So when I went to go watch this, I was like, it felt very similar, minus the sci-fi-ish. Okay. Um, I don't know which one's better, personally. But um, yeah, not a, not a huge experience with this. I rewatched it, like I said, for the podcast. Um, Elizabeth was thinking about watching it with me, but I said, it's, she's like, well, what's it about? And I was like, well, there's some action and it's kind of sci-fi. And she's like, I'm out. Just watch it on your own. So, <laughs> oh, oh, so oh. <laughs> just watched it on my own. Um, yeah, that's my experience. Bling, what's your experience? So I actually did see this movie in theaters and going into the film, I had no, I didn't see any trailers for it. I did not know what it was about. I knew it had Denzel in it. And um, it was kind of weird because I knew it was the same year that Inside Man came out. So when I actually did see it, it was just like, he's kind of playing a similar role because he's like a law enforcement type person. And, and so, you know, after watching the film, I don't remember seeing it ever again, but I did rewatch it for this podcast. And yeah, I could tell it was like, wow, this movie came out quite a while ago because just some of the old tech and some of the old things that are in it. But yeah, I, I, for the most part, I did both times I did watch it, I did enjoy it. That's my experience. Cool. Uh, my experience, I think I'd only seen pieces of this movie once. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I can't even remember the last time I saw it, but I do remember some things about it. Uh, so I watched it again, I guess you could say in full for the first time, possibly. Uh, I don't know, maybe I'm having deja vu. I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I saw it on a Wednesday night. Uh, after work and uh, it was free on Amazon watched it and uh, I enjoyed myself yeah and uh, that's my experience 
Nice. Cool. Uh, Before we get into behind the scenes, Jordan, why don't you hit us with the financials? Yeah, so this movie had a budget of $75 million. Its U.S. box office was a little over $64 million, and that's about $89 million in uh, adjusted for inflation. About $20.5 million of that U.S. box office was taken in over opening weekend. But when it got back from the international box office, that's when it really started making some money. It raked in over $117 million internationally for a grand total box office of just over $181 million. Then you add about $41 million worth of DVD sales and you know you had yourself a pretty uh, lucrative video. This actually happens to be Denzel's eighth largest grossing film today out of the 51 that he's been credited as an actor in. And does anyone wanna take a guess as to what his largest grossing film is? I would say Training Day. Okay. Remember the Titans? Mm-hmm. Okay. Deja vu. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I, that's tough. I, I was going to say Training Day as well, but I think maybe yeah. Remember the times it was obviously larger audience. Lot, you know, John Q. I mean, I don't know. It could be any of them. Okay, but good pull. Actually, you're all wrong. It's American Gangster, oh, where he played Frank, Frank Lucas, Lucas. Yeah. and that pulled in over 267, almost 268 million dollars, wow. followed by Safe House. So it wasn't even a one-two. 40 million from DVD sales. That doesn't sound bad at all. 41 million. Actually, 41.5 uh, million for DVD sales. So, yeah, it, it, it pulled. When you think of this movie, like, don't you just think of, like, a DVD? Kind of. It's just so they era. can watch it over and over again. It's during that experience. It's during the area of the physical media, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. It's for all those assholes, too, so they can watch it again <laughs> around their friends and say, I feel like I'm having deja vu. And <laughs> that's all it's for. <laughs> I'm that guy. I'm I'm that guy. All right, Jason, uh, tell us what the people thought. So on Rotten Tomatoes, 56% of the critics liked it. Uh, There was 163 reviews with an average rating of 5.9 out of 10. So there was 91 fresh ratings and 72 rotten. Uh, From the audience, 73% gave it a 3.5 or higher out of 5 with an average rating of 3.7 out of 5 with over 250,000 ratings. So... Not bad. I mean, I don't know if I'd give it, you know, a C, but I think it's that's I think that's more accurate than what the critics gave it. Um, there's a couple of funny quotes on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, this guy named David Denby from the New Yorker, he gave it a rotten rating. He just said, uh, "quote I felt cheated." This other uh, guy named Brian Talarico from Yugo, he says, "quote It's a hard movie to hate, just one that's far too easy to forget." I don't know. I thought it would, I don't know. I think it's better than that. I think this guy's just being an asshole. But yeah, a little harsh. Yeah, IMDb had a 7.0 out of 10, so kind of right in the middle between the audience and the critics on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, with over 300,000 reviews. So yeah, I think that when I looked at the demos, um, the only one that kind of really stood out was females. I think under 18, which was like they gave it an average rating of five something. But again, there's only four votes, so I'm not really considering that one when there's 300,000 plus votes. But yeah, that's the ratings. All right, let's go into behind the scenes. And uh, we're going to start with the writers of this movie. So uh, this movie was conceived by writers uh, Bill Marsili and uh, Terry Rossio. Uh, Bill Marsili, uh, his other credits include uh, 
Courage the Cowardly Dog. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Who is I, it? I couldn't. I, can I say that over? I cannot stop laughing. <laughs> We're not cutting this out, man. Keep going. <laughs> Try again. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Getting deja Bill. vu right here. I'm sorry, Bill. I'm courage sorry. as in courage the cowardly dog. <laughs> you stupid dog. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Uh, so, Bill Marsili, uh, other credits of his include uh, Courage the Cowardly Dog and the. Uh, the Wubulous World of Dr. Seuss. Do you guys remember this TV show? No, nope. no. Nope. I think it was on like Nickelodeon or some shit back mm-hmm. in the day. I think it was like either live action or a cartoon, but yeah, The Wubulous World of Dr. Seuss. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then uh, Terry Rossio, uh, his credits include Aladdin, Small Soldiers, National Treasure Book of Secrets, Pirates of the Caribbean, and uh, Godzilla versus Kong. But more importantly, in fact, the most important thing of all that he's ever worked on, he wrote Shrek. What? Oh, okay. He is the godfather of Shrek. Wow. He's got a pretty beefy resume there, yeah. man. I don't know, man. Homeboy's got the webulous world of <laughs> Dr. Seuss. That's a, that's some fucking range that he's got there. Yeah. But I will say this, though. Curse the Cowardly Dog, that, that show was great, though. I will say that. I enjoyed that show. Sideline, they're actually bringing him back. He's going to do a crossover with Scooby-Doo and the gang. I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know if, like, the Scooby-Doo crew is worthy of, like, a, a Courage episode. A courage? Yeah. I mean, I think it would probably do very well. Yeah, Courage would be going through some shit. I'm confused because you could barely say that without laughing, and now you're saying, you know what, Courage, he's a cool-ass dude, man. And I'm like, what the fuck? Are you messing with me? No, it's just like, I laugh because we have this like super serious <laughs> Denzel Washington movie, and it's by somebody who wrote The Webulous World of Dr. Seuss. <laughs> like, like, the contrast is insane. I did like Courage the Cowardly Dog, but I'm just kind of like, you go from Courage to writing this, like yeah. with Denzel and Tony Scott, like, you know, that's, that's crazy. I'm just saying you kept a really straight face when you said The Intruder was a good movie, so I'm like, I'm not sure if you're messing with me again like you did on that one. Well, no, I was serious. <laughs> I was serious about that movie. <laughs> Worth every penny. Yeah. Uh, that's why I gave it five bucks. <laughs> um, as far as how these two writers met and how Deja Vu came to be, so I found this uh, this forum post by uh, Bill Marsili on uh, wordplayer.com. So Bill Marsili originally wanted to become an actor and uh, he moved to New York in order to pursue that as a career. Uh, after graduation, he and his college buddies formed a, a theater company called Bad Neighbors. His first ever full-length play was a rock musical that he co-wrote called uh, Pink Vinyl Blue Guitar. Sounds like he's on some print shit, you know? <laughs> uh, and it actually got good critic reviews. Uh, after this, Marsili would perform solo acts at comedy clubs in New York. I'm not sure if they were like a one-man act or a stand-up, uh, until it eventually was suggested to him that he take up writing a screenplay. Uh, his first ever feature-length script was titled uh, The Invisible Chair, and it was about a uh, Vatican intelligence agent that works for the Pope. Uh, it didn't get made, but it did get his foot in the door uh, in Hollywood. And at one of the meetings uh, he had, Robert Zemeckis walked up and told him that he was a fan of his work. Wow, that's yeah. impressive. So that's pretty good, man. Courage the Cowardly Duck. Um, he was motivated by that attention that he was getting, and uh, he decided to seek out advice by hopping onto uh, the writer's room forums on AOL. And uh, the guy that <laughs> Are you okay? AOL. Remember that shit? I still have an AOL account. Oh, wow. Was it AOL, CompuServe, NetZero, all that shit. Yeah, that was crazy. Good times. 
Uh, so he goes on these forums on AOL, and uh, the guy that was answering questions on the forum was none other than Terry Rossio, uh, who at the time was writing partners with Ted Elliott, who worked on most of the projects that Rossio worked on, including Shrek. So we have another godfather of Shrek. Nice. Yeah, got to pay some fucking respect, you know. Reshrecked. Um, anyway, Marsili shot Rossio an email asking if they could meet up for lunch in L.A. so he could, you know, kind of pick his brain. Uh, coincidentally, Rossio was flying out to New York where Marsili lived that same week. So Marsili says, like, oh, you know, hey, let's meet up since you're going to be out here. And Rossio says, actually, I'm going to be busy with the screening and a press conference. And then uh, Marsili says, oh, you must have like some sort of movie opening. And Rossio says, yeah, it's Aladdin. <laughs> and, uh, Marsili says, I've heard of that movie before. Maybe I'll uh, go to the screening. And Rossio says, it's uh, $500 a ticket. And then Marsili tells him, maybe I'll rent it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so they decided to meet in L.A. after all. But um, Terry Rossio ended up having an extra ticket to the Aladdin screening and actually offered Marsili a ticket because he was the only person he knew in New York at the time. So they kind of built their friendship and their like uh, working relationship from then on. So that's pretty cool that you know he just... Meshes this dude online and, you know, they're buddies. Uh, getting into the Deja Vu script. Uh, one day, years later, Terry Rossio asked Bill Marsili to write something that he and Ted Elliott could uh, produce. And what came up in the conversation was a one-page idea Rossio had called uh, Prior Conviction about a cop who uses a time window to look seven days into the past to investigate his girlfriend's murder. That's when Marsili had the idea that the cop should fall in love with the girl while he's watching the last few days of her life and that the first time he sees her should be at her autopsy. Kind of what happens in this movie, you know, he finds her on the shore of the river or whatever. Um, there was difficulty working on this story at first. Rossio was in LA and uh, Marsili was in New York. Uh, the time difference along with the September 11th attacks as well as Rossio being uh, busy with Pirates of the Caribbean kind of was a factor in them, you know, not being able to collaborate as well as they wanted to. They decided to set some time aside and actually meet up in person to solely focus on this script. And basically, the two ended up co-writing it, completing the story over six months from December 2003 to May 2004. According to uh, MoviesOnline.com, they even brought uh, Dr. Brian Green from Columbia University to consult on the science of time travel and, uh, you know, the paper folding explanation uh, for wormholes that you see in the movie comes directly from their uh, consultation with him. So that was pretty good. Uh, they showed the script to their agents uh, to get it out there in uh, June uh, 2004. And uh, since Terry Rossio had a good working relationship with Jerry Bruckheimer, he decided to show him the script as well. A couple of days later, Marsili had an offer for $2.5 million for the script and an additional $1 million bonus if it's greenlit, with another $1 million bonus if he and Rossio get sole credit as writers. And it eventually sold for between $4.5 and $5 million, making it one of the most expensive scripts ever purchased at that time in Hollywood. So, courage. It's Takes impressive. courage. Yeah, it's impressive. Yeah. Uh, so all this time uh, before getting Deja Vu off the ground, Marsili was working odd jobs, writing scripts that really weren't going anywhere and working a night job, you know, staying up late, just writing and writing. And during all this time, he had a baby daughter. So after he got paid just before his daughter's first birthday, he and his wife packed all their stuff and moved to L.A. And this post that I'm referencing uh, that's online, uh, he wrote this the day before he moved to L.A. after getting paid for this script. And uh, I got to say, it's, it's a really good read because, like, you can actually read the excitement in his voice as he's typing this because like he's writing this article right after he got paid to to do this movie which is pretty insane because like so rarely do you see like a full ass article by the the person involved directly in a movie 
and you know you hear it secondhand but uh, I don't know it was just a really cool read moving on to the director uh, the director on this movie is Tony Scott uh, he was the younger brother of Ridley Scott but uh, you know unfortunately he passed away in August 2012 other movies that he worked on were Top Gun Beverly Hills Cop 2 Days of Thunder Man on Fire Crimson Tide the Taken of Pelham 123 and Unstoppable. So uh, Tom Cruise and Denzel are his guys, it seems. Like, they're in a lot of his movies. Uh, regarding Tony Scott, Terry Rossio says that uh, in his own wordplay.com forum post, I guess these writers like to use this place, um, that he thought Tony Scott was the wrong choice. Here's a rather long but interesting quote from that post online. Uh, a meeting on the project Deja Vu, where Tony Scott was about to be hired as director, completely the wrong choice in that tony had stated that he had no interest in making a science fiction movie and suggested the time travel aspect be dumped completely my hope was that we had a screenplay that could be the next six cents tony wanted to make just another surveillance movie jerry bruckheimer acknowledged there were issues with tony but wouldn't budge on his choice uh, jerry bruckheimer said quote I have a director, a script, a star, and the studio giving me a green light, he said. It's not my job to not make movies. He was Jerry Bruckheimer. He could get any film made anywhere. Jerry Bruckheimer saw the situation as a bird in the hand, and that's how he became Jerry Bruckheimer. He told me, if I blow this up, I can't honestly tell you if the film will ever get produced. But Jerry was following the rule, spend more time making films and less time trying to get films made. So he's all about like, just fucking make the movie. You know, yeah. who, who cares who's on it? Just make it to the best of your ability. And at one point, Tony Scott even wanted to bring in his own writers for Deja Vu after he was hired. Uh, on this particular incident, Rossio references Bill Marsili, who says, quote, uh, I've been amazed to discover how often the better I do at my job, the more likely it is that I'll get replaced. A merely serviceable draft of an okay idea is not likely to land a top director with the power to demand an entirely new story or fire the writer on a whim. But if I write a killer script that directors are fighting over, the work attracts a top director who can walk in on day one and say, I want my own writer. So it's, it's a pretty fucked up situation. It's like, if you're a good writer, like your script is what pulls all these pieces together. But like, just like that, at the drop of a hat, the director or somebody can come in and say, well, we want a new writer. And it's just like, but you guys are all here for this writer. So it's a pretty fucked up situation. And uh, at one point, Tony Scott actually quit this movie and uh, Rossio and Marsili had to convince him to come back in order to keep Denzel on the project because he was also thinking about walking away too. Two weeks pulling all-nighters to redo the script, and according to Rossio, uh, the revised script was so good that Denzel called Tony Scott and told him to come back to the project personally and made him swear that he wouldn't leave the project again. And that's when Tony Scott said, I'll come back if I can get my own writers. So that, that's effed up. Uh, but, you know, this this kind of post goes on and on and on by Terry Rossio. And he pretty much also goes on to say, like, hey, we're good at our jobs. We're the ones that kind of sell the script, get the studio involved, that pulls in the actors, that pulls in the directors, etc. And I believe Bill Marsili describes being a writer as uh, designing a really cool amusement park, but you're not even allowed to enter the gate. Like you're locked outside mm -hmm. and you watch everybody else ride the rides you designed and you're not allowed to go in. That's kind of what he described being a writer in Hollywood is like. And he says, uh, directors don't get replaced like we do. Actors don't get replaced like we do. Uh, crew doesn't get replaced like we do. Neither do producers. But it always seems like the writers are the ones that get booted off first. Mm -hmm. And even if they're good at their jobs. So, yeah, it's kind of effed up. 
Yeah, but I mean, all that being said, uh, they didn't bring any other writers because these guys got sole credit, and I didn't see anybody else get credit for the writing on this movie. Uh, according to IMDb, the writers felt like Tony Scott didn't even do that great of a job uh, capturing everything in their screenplay, and that he was more interested in the action scenes compared to the intricacies of time travel. They felt their script was uh, much tighter, much tighter than what made it to the final product, and that the final film now has a bunch of plot holes. Uh, Tony Scott would also later admit that he did a mediocre job directing, and uh, he kind of blamed that on a uh, 19-week production schedule, which wasn't as long as he wanted. So how do you guys feel about that whole relationship? I don't know. It sounds like a mess, man. It sounds brutal. I mean, it ended up being a good product, I I feel like, but it just sounds like it was a fucking headache, man. I feel bad for some some of these writers, man. Hearing that these writers don't believe that Tony Scott did a fantastic job or even a mediocre job, you know, portraying their original screenplay leaves me wanting to actually see what they did because I did notice a lot of plot holes in the movie. And I'm curious to see if those plot holes were covered in the original screenplay versus what were shown. Even when you have the director saying he did a mediocre job, that's even more kind of damning, you know? Which is kind of odd, too, because I feel like Tony Scott seems like a good fit for this film because for a film about surveillance and watching, I mean, he's done films like this. He did Enemy of the State, so, which I, I mean, by comparison was a way better film, but it's it's kind of the same kind of themes are explored, and so I figured he'd be familiar with it. It just kind of sucks. You know, we, we do a lot of these movies and we talk about like, oh, you know, this writer was replaced by this writer, this and that. And we talk about that kind of offhand, like, oh, you know, they brought in this writer and they brought in this writer. But like, you never really know like why they bring in different writers, mm-hmm. you know? That's a weird perspective too. It's like just seeing like, hey, everyone else is pretty solidified in their roles. They don't really have to worry about anything. And it's like, but writers, it's just like, eh, I don't like you today. We're going to pick someone else. And you're just like kind of thrown away real fast. Which is incredibly difficult because if I was a writer and spent a bunch of time and energy and devotion into putting this script together to have it changed, my work changed with something that I don't necessarily agree with just seems like a gut punch to me. Yeah, but I think that's a double-edged sword too. Like you have to be open to criticism too and say, hey, like, okay, I wrote it this way, but I kind of like what you're saying. Maybe we can change that too. I could see where some writers are like, no, no, it is what it is. We're not changing it. This is what it is. And it's like, sometimes you got to be open to and say, hey, you know what? For this to be on screen, for this to have this actor, maybe someone got recast, who knows? It's like, you know what? We could change this part to fit them. So I don't know. I think you got to think about it from both ways. Maybe I'm wrong, though. No, I think you're right. Like, it's definitely got to be collaborative. It just feels like, um, and, and then again, you know, we are reading this from the writer's perspective. Yeah. We don't really have full perspective of what, of what Tony Scott says besides him admitting that he did an okay, mediocre job on this. But it's it's like, um, you're right. Like, the director knows what's going to look good on screen. You know, certain people are going to know what lines can and can't be said or sound better. You know, like, sometimes you have to kind of, like, get out of your own space. You might be too close to the script to accept criticism. But you're right. I think it needs to be more collaborative. But it's just like, it is really effed up because like never, never once does a studio say like, oh, this director disagrees with the writer. We got to get another director. (laughs) It's fucked up. Um, I mean, the other thing you have to look at too is it's a collaboration, but you know, what, you know, get what gets written in, what gets written out, but also what's stuff that maybe gets filmed, but also gets cut. So, I mean, there's, 
we're talking about, it seems like there's a big disconnect between the directors and the writers. I mean, you gotta look at what was the stuff that wasn't even filmed or versus the stuff that may have been filmed but then ended up being on the cutting room floor. So yeah. there's a lot of things you gotta take into, into account. True, and then you gotta look at like uh, the studio, maybe they want a movie that's under two hours, so maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes of footage gets cut out. Like, there's a lot of moving piece. Actor schedules, maybe there's certain scenes you couldn't even do at the time. And Maybe there's just something you have to know going into the business, like, hey, like, just because I'm real close to this or I'm really like passionate about this, like I have to know that I have to be malleable and willing to adapt and change and all this stuff because it's going to happen, whether it's a studio or a director or a producer or whatever it can be, an actor. It, like you gotta be able to adapt and change. Yeah. Kinda go with the flow a little bit or you're gonna get upset. Exactly. Check yourself before you shrek yourself. <laughs> there it is, there it is. Uh, so moving on to the cast, uh, we got uh, Denzel Washington as ATF Special Agent Douglas Carlin. You know, we know Denzel from uh, Remember the Titans, Malcolm X, and uh, Training Day. According to Tony Scott, Denzel lost 40 pounds of weight in order to prepare for this role. He didn't look like it. <laughs> Fuck, he walked in with dad bod? <laughs> I found this online. That's what he said. Uh, then we got uh, Paula Patton as uh, Claire uh, Kushiver. Uh, we know her from uh, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, mm -hmm. and other things, I hope. Uh, then we have uh, Jim Caviezel as uh, Carol Ordstadt. Uh, he was Jesus in Passion of the Christ. That's all I kept thinking when I was watching this. Yeah. And, and he's going to be Jesus in the sequel, Passion of the Christ, Resurrection. You're lying. You're shitting I'm me. dead serious. I looked this Did up. Didn't Family Guy make a spoof on that? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I think it was like Passion of the Christ Resurrection or something like that in the Family Guy. But So it's the same title then? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, oh, it's Crucify uh, This. Crucify This. Yeah. With Chris Tucker. <laughs> <laughs> the Family Guy. Uh, the Family Guy version. Gotcha, gotcha. Oh, God. You crazy, Jesus? You crazy? <laughs> <laughs> Is this real life? <laughs> this this is real. I looked it up today. Passion of the Christ, Resurrection. Mel Gibson's back on this one. Yeah, of course he Resurgence. is. Resurgence. Oh God. Are you, are you dead? I, I'm dead serious. It's called Passion of the Christ, Resurrection. Like you can look it up. It's real. I mean, that's a fitting title. I understand. I'd, I'd like to take uh, movies that don't need a sequel for two hundred. Like yeah. <laughs> Hey, look! I don't make the rules here. I, right? I have to look more into this. I'm cu I'm curious about this now. I mean, I have a lot of things to say, but I'm not going to say them. I feel like we should review the next three days after this. With the, was it Russell Crowe? Is it matter or whatever? Or was that Gerard Butler? Watch Patch the same person. Watch Passion of the Christ. The next three days. Watch Passion of the Christ. The next three days, and then Resurrection. It's like a trilogy. Oh God! Oh my God! I got to look more into that. I'm. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, next, we got Val Kilmer as FBI Special Agent uh, Paul Prezara. These names, man, they come up with this in the, in the movie. I don't know. Uh, Val Kilmer wanted to work with Denzel on this movie because their kids went to the same school. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. That is cool. <laughs> oh, <God>. Iceman. <laughs> I like what you did there. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You did it first, though. You yeah, it first. is it middle school or is it high school? High school. <laughs> uh, then we got uh, Adam Goldberg as Dr. Alexander Denny. Uh, he's in uh, Days and Confused, Saving Private Ryan, and uh, A Beautiful Mind. Then we got uh, Eldon Henson as Gunners. He's uh, Foggy Nelson in the Daredevil Netflix series. But, that's what he's from. But, 
He's also Fulton Reed in the Mighty Ducks. One half of the legendary Bash Brothers duo. There you go. That's yes. what it is. Yes. And I guess he reprises his role in a Disney Plus series called The Mighty Ducks Game Changers. Haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen it either. He's not playing hockey. He's a construction worker in that series. Oh, good for him. Okay. I know it has Emilio Estevez. (laughs) Mighty Ducks guy. Then we got uh, Erica Alexander as Shanti. Uh, She's Max uh, from Living Single. We got Bruce Greenwood as FBI agent Jack McCready. We saw him back in Double Jeopardy. And he's also in uh, Star Trek 2009. We got Matt Craven as ATF Special Agent Larry Minuti. He was in Crimson Tide along with Denzel, which was also directed by Tony Scott. And he's also in X-Men First Class as the CIA director. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, that's him. Yeah. But uh, moving on to production. Uh, this movie was supposed to take place in Long Island, New York. But Tony Scott decided to set the story in New Orleans because he thought it'd be a better fit. And I guess uh, a few weeks before production started, Hurricane Katrina happened. A lot of the location was devastated, and they considered moving the shoot to another location or canceling this movie altogether. But after a few months of delay, they decided to return to New Orleans and uh, start shooting again. Somewhere during this time, they held a press conference to announce that Deja Vu would be employing the New Orleans community during the shoot, bringing money to the region after the disaster. They got real U.S. Navy personnel to play extras in the movie, and they got a lot of uh, emergency medical services people. Uh, so almost everybody you see in emergency medical services gear is a real emergency services person. So, that's cool. Nice. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they also recruited a lot of the uh, disaster relief teams to assist in the film. And, uh, you know, of course, this movie was dedicated to them. I'm glad they did that. Because I was like, you, you see some of the scenes with the Katrina, like, damage in the background. I'm like, that's kind of cool that they dedicated to them. The visual effects uh, in this movie, let's talk about that. Uh, The visual effects supervisor on this movie was uh, Mark Varisco. Uh, He worked on Minority Report, Man on Fire, Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 1, Rise of Skywalker, and The Mandalorian. So he's got a he's got a pretty dope resume. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Solid. No yeah. Shrek, but okay. Yeah. yeah, you know he's he'll get there. If they ever do live action Shrek, he'll he'll be there. Or or live action Courage. <laughs> <laughs> you right, Jordan. All I'm thinking is like some poor dog getting spray painted purple and paint, having black spots painted on him or something like that. I feel like Eustace would be played by like Willem Dafoe. That's a good pull for Eustace. Yeah. What about Muriel? Oh, um... Betty White. Betty White and yeah. uh, Willem Dafoe. Yeah. 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 But let's talk about this movie. So that explosion at the beginning of the movie is the largest stunt ever filmed in the region. And according to IMDb, the first assistant cameraman named uh, Michael S. Endler, uh, during the shoot, he learned that his dad passed away. Uh, his dad was Gerald Endler, and he did special effects for Battle of the Planet of the Apes, Apocalypse Now, and Matilda. So as a tribute... They play some of his ashes uh, in the explosion. Wow, that's nice. Nice, yeah, that's nice cool. tribute. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for this uh, fairy explosion, I got this off of uh, animationworldnetwork.com. They talk about the opening explosion, and uh, Verisco says that um, for the explosion, they did it with an empty ferry in a controlled area on the Mississippi River. It took them about four hours to set up the explosion. They did it without any cars or people running, obviously, so they shot it with 16 cameras. Then afterwards, they put the people and the cars in. Some of the people were live-action plates, so they, like, they composited it. And then some of the people were like stunt people, some were CG. Um, all the close-up stuff, 
uh, they shot up the river and they had uh, stunt workers like jump off of a boat that wasn't exploded and they composited all that in. And then uh, they had to, you know, CGI or composite a lot of the explosions that you see, like uh, the internal explosions happening on the boat and stuff like that, the fires and all that stuff. All that stuff was shot separate from uh, the actual explosion. So, um, you know, the giant explosion, explosion was real. Uh, they did a uh, they did a scan of the boat to build like a CG render and stuff like that. But everything you see is like kind of composited. So they had a ferry, they had the bridge, um, and then they put in the explosion. But the explosion itself was filmed in another location, and they moved it into that plate. So mm-hmm. it's all a composite shot. But the explosion is is real though. I thought the explosion looked pretty good. The first, like rewatching it this time, I was impressed. Uh, did you guys think like it looked pretty good? Or, yeah, or no? actually really good. Yeah, I mean even the people in it. You know when they were like jumping off the boat and everything like that. Like, yeah, it looked pretty good because I, I was afraid that they were going to go real cg with it and it's going to look fake but it looked yeah. especially by the end of it yeah. the end of the explosion when it got really big i thought it looked i mean it, obviously it was real but it was it looked good on screen i originally thought that it was a model that they mm. blew up okay. so that's kind of a testament to you know their skills putting all that stuff together yeah so another aspect of uh, the visual effects, we all know uh, kind of the, the time window where they're able to go around the buildings and, and look at stuff, right? Uh, through the, you know, four hours in the past or whatever. Uh, so Mark Verisco, he explains that uh, he and Scott had previously worked on a movie called Domino the year before this. And uh, they had gotten a hold of uh, LIDAR, which is a uh, laser imaging detecting and ranging. And uh, you use that to scan a building or any sort of object and you're able to move around it in space digitally after completing the 3D scan. And Tony Scott liked it so much that he wanted to implement that into the whole time window thing. And for the actual production, one of the main things going into production utilizing the LIDAR, like Tony Scott kind of liked that uh, it kind of had this like unfinished look to it. you know, mm-hmm. with like, uh, you see the girl, she's like half made, like digitized and all that stuff. Like you can see through walls because they're not completely uh, fully scanned or whatever. So he liked that. And uh, he, he kind of wanted to leave it unclean because it, it kind of felt like it was like more organic. You know what I'm saying? And he kind of liked the uh, the rawness of it. It kind of gave it some more realism. When yeah, when they go real window. fast and they pan, like the buildings look unfinished and then they go in real fast. It takes a long time for it to render. I, yeah, that was pretty cool. It, it made it it made it feel more real because like we're going to talk about this in Trash and Treasure, but like this movie is like very grounded. Yeah. And then I like the fact that they didn't make this time travel thing like this overly super sophisticated looking thing you know yeah yeah yeah, I, th- I think it, it did give it a, a real sense because they even like made comparisons like, oh, this is like how we do infrared and how you know. So it, it's like okay, you can kind of compare it to something, and, and it seems real. <laughs> well, it felt like new. It's like this yeah. new technology they haven't perfected. Mm-hmm. Like they did a good job of like conveying that. It's like no, it's not something we've been holding on for twenty years and perfected. It's yeah. like you know we kind of stumbled upon this. And we're still trying to figure out the kinks. Mm-hmm. We're not going to tell you everything about it. But yeah. I think they did a good job of that. And like you said, Kerwin, it made it feel more real. Yeah. Uh, but that's it, really, for the for the special effects. Um, but going on to uh, Carol Orstadt, Jim Caviezel's character, uh, this from Wikipedia, he's very similar to uh, the Oklahoma City bomber, Timothy McVeigh. I can kind of see that a little bit, but I think the bigger tie-in is uh, it's a quick line but someone says hey you were on oklahoma city right and it's like yeah it gets kind of quiet for a second so it kind of leads you to assume that denzel they might have said it later in the movie but he was leading the investigation or part of the investigation on the oklahoma city bombing so that's probably why they try to make jim caviezel's character look like timothy Mm -hmm. mcveigh uh for the music uh in this movie it was uh composed by harry david gregson williams projects he has worked on are phone booth man on fire 
Chronicles of Narnia, X-Men Origins Wolverine, Yikes. The Martian, and uh, the entire Shrek franchise. Are you okay. serious? Oh. Sensing the trend here. Yeah, I, a lot of Shrek people. I, I was about to discredit his whole, whole catalog, but that last one, whoo. Mm. Changes everything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Totally uh, redeem yourself. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then that's that's pretty much it for behind the scenes. Other than that, you know, we talked about the DVD sales and stuff like that. Was it like 40 mil or something like that? Yeah, 41.5. Yeah. So um, this was the second most purchased DVD in the United States at the time of its release. Uh, and it was second only to Night at the Museum. Jesus. Wow. Yeah. I've never even seen that movie. Me neither. Yeah. Is that uh, 20, 2007, I think, the DVD dropped? And yeah, it sold a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's the height of the physical media, you know, that whole decade of where physical media was was yeah. a thing. New Movie Tuesdays, like you, people would get in line to buy stuff, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, guys, that's it for Behind the Scenes. All right, y'all, let's move on to Trash and Treasure. Jordan, what is your Trash and Treasure with Deja Vu? Okay, so I have a couple of things uh, for both Trash and Treasure. Um, Let's start off with one of my trashes. Why the fuck (laughs) is Denzel always putting dead people or their things to his lips in that fucking movie? (laughs) In the coroner scene, he literally wipes her fucking forehead and tastes it. I know what he's trying to do. He's trying to check that residue, but there has got to be a cleaner and more sanitary way to accomplish that. And then later on in the movie, he finds her missing earring at the spot where she was torched and he picks it up and kisses it. This fucking guy is nasty. (laughs) Plain and simple, like uh, it's weird. a second uh, trash that I have is the the typical time travel paradox. While I appreciated the fact that they killed off the Carlin that we've essentially been following around the entire movie to prevent two of the same guy being in the same timeline, mm-hmm. um, Deja Vu still ultimately finds itself in the time uh, in a time paradox by averting the disaster on the ferry and saving Claire's life, it basically removes all motivation for Carlin to go to such lengths and eventually back in time to save her. And if he doesn't go back, then the ferry blows and she dies. And then I kind of went down a bit of a rabbit hole and I was like, it's kind of fucking tragic when you think about it, man, because when we're introduced to Carlin, we're told that he's the kind of man who lives to work. Uh, He chooses not to have anyone in his life so he can't lose anyone. And now over the course of this movie, we gradually see Carlin's calculating cold exterior begin to crack as he starts to see things differently and begin to develop feelings uh, towards Claire. Ultimately, this leads to a single kiss that he straight up fucking stole from that girl. There was there was no like permission. He's just like, oh, by the way, yeah, all right, I'm yeah. out. Um, but at the end of the movie, this reformed Carlin that we've we've kind of taken this journey with, he's dead. And while Claire sees this new timeline Denzel come in, it's not the same one that she shared all of these intense experiences with. New timeline Denzel, he's had no such realizations, uh, and he's 
back to being the same. Well, I, I wouldn't say he's he's back. He never changed. New timeline is still the same cold and calculating person that we saw at the uh, beginning of the movie. Can you just really pick up a witness like that and put him in your car? Like, is he gonna steal another kiss from her? Like, what? I, I mean, he he's taking things from like active crime scenes all the time. Again, the earring, active crime scenes, like whoop, mine. You know, he's going into like her house and you know, touching things and moving things and all that kind of stuff. And this guy's like a terrible, terrible cop. You know, removing a witness from the scene also. Yeah, like at it, the very end. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, we got questions for her. Yeah, but uh, I want to see what she looks like underneath that dress. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Another trash that I had is sending shit back in time through the machine. Yes, is so out of the fucking question. Why is it? They have everything they need to do it, like at the drop of a hat. I mean, the specially designed little sandwich plate glass thing that they use to hold the letter when they send it back in time. A little convenient for me. Yeah. It barely fits the letter. Yes, it's like it was it's like perfectly customized <laughs> to it. They're like, no, nah, we just had this shit laying around, man. You know, I'm not uh, I'm not a military person. I, I never I never claimed to be. My father-in-law did serve in the Navy. And one of the things that kind of made me question was in the opening scene where you see all these uh, Navy, you know, seamen, I, I guess. You know, <laughs> Don't laugh at that. <laughs> Straight face. Uh, they're running around. They're, they're running onto the ferry. They're putting on all their stuff. They're in, they're in dress whites. I mean, that's a military uniform. And they're kind of, you see a lot of them acting the fool in front of, in front of their, you know, commanding officers. And I just, I don't think that would fly. Maybe one of our, you know, listeners who has more experience or maybe one of you guys who has a little bit more knowledge could explain um, that. But uh, yeah, it, it seems a little um, out of the ordinary. Uh, dress whites are actually typically reserved for ceremonies, such as a change of command or retirements, commissionings, decommissionings, funerals, weddings, and you know other similar uh, appropriate instances. So I thought that was a little odd that they were just running around crazy like that. So not for Mardi Gras? They, not for Mardi Gras. Uh, oh, okay. Not for Mardi Gras. May, I mean, maybe. I mean, that. I guess that's my question is maybe for Mardi Gras. We saw a lot of them with, with uh, Mardi Gras beads on. So. Well, they did say that they were they were transporting them to a celebration, like a military celebration at the beginning of the movie. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know it was a military celebration. I thought it was just like some, all right, it's time to get over to Mardi Gras. I got one more trash, but that'll that'll play a little bit later. Let's let's um, talk about treasures. Denzel puts on a masterclass in the way that he can talk down to somebody and leave them thinking like nothing happened. Uh, like when he's talking about the or he's talking to the cops in the beginning about the coffee pot or the scientist when he's trying to figure out like what this machine actually is. I mean, he is basically like on a kid level talking to them and they're just like oh yeah, yeah cop, uh, cof- no coffee pot that's that's that way he's like all right this is a guy in charge he knows where the coffee pot is <laughs> you know the past and present car chase i really enjoyed hmm. um a very original concept essentially he has to dodge the traffic of like two different time periods while he's uh, chasing down this guy 
Um, a slight trash caveat is how many people were killed or injured <laughs> Thank you. in those damn accidents <laughs> yeah. while he was chasing these guys. I mean, incredibly reckless for a guy who, at the time, believed that there was no way to avert the ferry explosion. But he's still driving down that freeway, uh, you know, wrecking shot. My last treasure uh, as a former medical um, professional is the defibrillator scene when he actually goes back in time and you, they catch him seizing yeah. uh, on, on the gurney and they bring him over. It's actually correct, which a lot of movies don't take the time to um, look into and, and, and portraying. Defibrillators are not really intended to restart a stopped heart, which is what a lot of people believe. They basically reset it to a normal rhythm. So the way I put it is like, you remember when you were a kid and you were messing around and your mom slapped you upside the back of the head, you know, to straighten up and act right. That's essentially what a defibrillator does for your heart. It sends a bolt or a jolt of electricity across it, which tells the heart, you know, you know, shape up and return to a normal rhythm. They used this defibrillator because when he came back in time after a seizure, um, Carlin's heart went into uh, V-fib or ventricular fibrillation and the medical team correctly used it. Afterwards, uh, his heart stopped working correctly, which is why uh, that nurse began performing some very weak ass CPR <laughs> on him. Very weak. Guys, let me tell you something. Not everybody's the same. However, a good rule of thumb is if you aren't cracking ribs it's... while you're performing CPR, you're probably not pressing hard enough. Yeah. And then my final trash, they basically just destroyed all this goodwill that they built up in my mind with the defibrillator scene by having Denzel wake up, see that he was connected to the EKG machine and just basically unplugged it and it just powered down quietly and let him be on his business. No, 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 no. If you disconnect from an EKG machine, the EKG thing uh, machine thinks one of two things. One, you flatlined and they it needs to bring everybody over to resuscitate you, or you fell out of bed and disconnected yourself, in which case it still needs to make a bunch of noise and bring everybody over to you. Yeah, he unplugs it and it's just like, okay, goodbye. <laughs> and... <laughs> It's just like that's. I mean, you just ruined everything that you had with with the previous scene. Um, final treasure for me, the Beach Boys. I love the Beach Boys, you know, and uh, for them to be included in this kind of movie, where I would have never thought that there's one of their songs would have you know ever been found, uh, they did. So I appreciated that. And those are my trashes and treasures. Jason, what's your trash and treasure? I'll start with my trash. Uh, yeah, first one, the licking of the thumb. Like, I just, I lost my freaking mind when Fucking I was Fucking nasty, right? It's nasty. It's worse, too, because then he goes and presses on her lips, and it's just this gooey saliva stuff, and it's just like, the camera's uh. like right next to her cheek, and it's just like, wow, back to back, we're doing this shit. Okay. Um, maybe I'm wrong here, but why is an ATF agent investigating a murder? Am I wrong? Or am I right? I don't know, but I feel like he's there to, you know, for the explosion part of it, but it's like the murders, I don't know. I just feel like, especially with Claire in particular, you probably have like a homicide detective or someone Forensics there. or something, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's or like a, she's a at team, the, yeah, other people, not necessarily, the, the ATF basically deals with the, the actual, like I said, the explosion. They're like, okay, we determined this, and then the whole movie should have been trying to figure out like, oh, you know, 
where they where they procure all these you know items and everything. Not necessarily the whole. We need to investigate, you know, the father, you know, do, you know, you know, the, the, the victims. I think, yeah, I think your point is yeah, it right. Just, it felt weird, like he brought the plastic <laughs> explosive in the bag and it's like, okay, well, yeah. So like, hey, we gotta figure out this wiring, the sheath, we can figure out who made it, we can figure out where they bought it, yeah. and then this and that, I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But then like, his devotion to Claire, just, I'm like, is this really in your realm or your scope of work, like, as an ATF agent? So I think the movie tried to give a very flimsy reason for him to do it when Claire's dad basically gave him a bunch of pictures of Claire and was like, I know I got to do this so she matters to you. Um, So I think that coupled with the fact that for some weird reason, he right off the bat basically said like her death and the fairy explosion are tied together. So if you solve her death, then you're gonna solve the fairy explosion. I think that's kind of what kept him on the on the track for, for tracing her. But yeah, uh, agreed. It it should have gone to local PD after after the explosion. Yeah, that's what I think too. Uh, when Denzel gets to Claire's apartment, I mean, there's tons of blood and all kinds of shit. It takes him a while. We don't even see him make the call to call in other people to come into the scene. We just get a call later on saying that the people are there. I'm like, when you get there and you see blood and you see all this shit, I, I immediately think, hey, you got to call somebody uh, to come in. Because, again, he's an ATF agent, not a crime scene investigator <laughs> or a detective at right. this point. So uh, that's mm-hmm. my thought. Um, it's crazy that the same day as the explosion, that that night, fairies are still running right there. And Denzel and Val Kilmer are on a ferry. It's going. It's still moving. And it's like, you think things just get shut the fuck down after a ferry explodes at that yeah. point. Um, I don't know. That's, that's what I think. Yeah, I mean, you remember when we were kids and 9-11 happened, like, there were no fucking flights going anywhere. No. Yeah, unless you were like a person, unless you were like a VIP or a political figure, like, even even if that, like, you were not fucking flying. Everything was fucking grounded, right. period. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, they. I mean, I think some schools shut down. Like everything, like kind of like paused, like it halted for a minute because, I mean, it was a huge catastrophe. Just as this, I mean, it's five hundred plus people that died on this ferry. It's like that's a huge terrorist event, and it's like, no, no, no. Guess what? This one little area, we're not having ferries run today. Yeah, yeah. Like, Sorry, shut you're it stuck. Down. Yeah, shut down. just be safe about this. And like, I just thought it was odd. Mm. Um, did they ever explain? Maybe I missed this part. Did they ever explain how they got the audio? I know Denzel asked it. I felt like it got real quiet. Yeah. And it's never fucking explained how they get the audio from all these shots from four days and six hours before. Didn't they say something to the effect that they could not get audio? Did they Did they say that they couldn't get audio and that's why they were quiet or something like that? But they got audio. The audio. It's yeah. they. They kind of. Gl- I. I, I want to say they glossed over it because they, that whole sequence they glossed over a lot of things. Because I th- at the same time, I think they're trying to not give Denzel the entire truth. They're just kind of like, okay, we're gonna talk some science mumbo jumbo, and then hopefully it just kind of like. But I. Yeah, it, it's very glossed over. But I. I think yeah, they, they don't really truly address how they get the audio. They just kind of like, oh, okay, we're kind of like, eh, and yeah. then they, and then we move on. Yeah, and it's just like so fast. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't like that yeah. part. Um. I think Jordan already kind of talked about this, but yeah, just when Denzel's chasing his partner in the in the Hummer with the rig, it causes so many accidents, and it's like we don't even know if he's going to be successful. Like, there's cars flipping, and semi trucks crashing, and it's like people are injured, possibly dying, and it's like we we understand you're trying to prevent this huge catastrophe from happening. 
I think Denzel's more concerned about Claire herself at this point. Um, but he just does this and then just leaves him and just just yeah, yeah. does does the ends justify the means like yeah. it's like you like okay you're trying to get this but it's like yeah you like you, you killed 10 million people or yeah. he does say call for emergency services he did say that <laughs> once but but thank god for that <laughs> but I, mean, I think i think they're just like oh shit he's kind of you know doing wanton endangerment like we gotta we gotta throw a line in there somewhere to validate this or else it looks fucked up and they can't even see what he's really doing they just keep seeing the past they don't even see what he uh, uh, it's just i don't know i didn't like that um when Claire gets into the truck towards the end of the movie and is about to drive, and she does drive it off the end of the boat, there is no way in hell that she drove that blazer through all those cars with enough force for it to flip midair and come down. I just thought that was complete bullshit. Um, I wish at the end we could have explained the conversation between Claire and Denzel. I want to see that go further. I want to see that yeah. keep going. Um, like, how the fuck do you explain that? Um, and then the ending. This is a question for you guys. Do you think it ended the way it should have? Like, I look at it, and what I was reading a little bit, I know, Kerwin, when you were doing the research on this one, but a little bit what I was reading was saying that, like, it felt very Hollywoodish, like, where it's like, yeah. it doesn't leave you hanging, it doesn't leave you... I mean, I, I do like that they say throughout the movie that even if we interfere with the past and all that kind of stuff, that it's still going to work out in the same, like we're still here, it's still going to work out the same way. And in a sense, except for Claire surviving and not exploding and killing all those people, like Denzel still dies, there's still one Denzel. Mm -hmm. A lot of the stuff he saw was still there, but there's a couple of things that changed, but it felt too buttoned up, too clean at yeah. the end. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. And I'll touch up a little bit on my trash treasure too, but I felt like, yeah, the ending was, I don't know what was actually filmed. Maybe maybe it was supposed to be a longer ending and just we just kind of edited out a lot of stuff for to wrap it up. But yeah, it, it was just way too clean the way it, it ended. Yeah. Also ending on a freeze frame in 2006. Like, like he, <laughs> yeah. he's just like, he's just like, nah. And then he just turns his head and the camera just freezes yeah. like mid motion. Yeah. And I'm just like, Credits and I'm just like wait wait you guys couldn't even like drive into the distance and fade to black yeah. you couldn't you couldn't like just drive away like it had to be a freeze frame it's like Rumble in the Bronx how it just like ends abruptly <laughs> yeah. and it freezes like I was just kind of like this is stupid I felt like I was watching like a like an 80s or early 90s like buddy cop procedural or something they could have gotten it like to 88 and then like they just like a DeLorean just like took off and just, <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> Um, I I agree. I, I thought the ending was a little bit weird. If it were me, and I had the ability to rewrite, I probably would have made one darker change in the ending, and I would have killed off new timeline Denzel, and had old timeline Denzel take his spot, because I think then they would have kept the timeline. They would have avoided a paradox it would have given kind of a, a, a cleaner ending, you know, um, as, as fucked up as that sounds. I, I mean, mine's even more fucked up. Oh. I think that everything should have happened the way it already happened. I think the boat should have exploded. I think the, the Denzel from the future now in the past should have died. I think that should have stayed the same. But I think, like, th this is just me. To keep with what they were saying, that whatever you do, it is not going to change what's happening. Like Claire gets sucked under, her fingers get sliced off by the propeller or something, and mm -hmm. she washes up on shore. Mm -hmm. 
okay, so maybe the time difference is there from when it gets called in because they said it got called in before the explosion. I'm getting kind of deep into this movie, but then it would have been like, you really cannot change anything going in the past. And that would have kept with the theme of at least what was said at least two or three times throughout the movie. Yeah. Then it would have been like, okay, but this ending is just too buttoned up. It's too clean. Claire survives. Denzel's still technically alive, I guess. The boat didn't explode, and it's like, okay, now we're Hollywooding this up, and we're not allowing for it to be like, hey, this is like a weird kind of take on time travel and how you cannot affect the past. Yeah, I don't think that would happen in, in 2006. I mean, at that time, it was basically everything has to have a happy Hollywood ending. Yeah. You don't have those kind of twister endings like, you know, The Sixth Sense, The M. Night Shyamalan's, where you're just like, your your expectations are are completely thrown out the window. It had to end on a happy note. <laughs> yeah, and and this is five years coming off the back of, you know, once again, 9-11. Also, like we just had Hurricane Katrina and we're filming this in Louisiana, in New Orleans. Like I, I think for the sake of that community and for the sake of like the overall psyche of the nation, I think that people want possibly to see a happy ending because the terror is real. You know, like what, what used to be Hollywood is like real now, you know what I'm saying? And I think they, and I think to your point, it's just like, they just wanted a happy ending. Yeah. yeah. And the way you're saying that, it makes a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, that's my, my, my trash. My treasure real quick is, like I said earlier, the explosion in the, in the beginning is really intense. Um, I kind of got some Dark Knight vibes with the fairy a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> I, I got a little bit of that. Yeah. Um, maybe a little bit of, uh, what was it, Double Jeopardy too? When yeah. On the fairy. Um, There's a lot of fairies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What the, f- like, what? Have you ever been on? I've been on a fairy one time in my life. I think I've been on yeah. one once in my yeah, life, too. A couple of fairies. But yeah. Double Jeopardy, too, because that one dude that that's in it as well. Because she also drives yeah. a vehicle off the off the edge. and I think that's a pickup truck, but it's still, it's like a truck kind of style. It's like, I don't know. It just felt too familiar. And she also has to swim away. <laughs> like, exactly. <laughs> Um, uh, Denzel's performance. I think Val Kilmer does a good job in this too. It's a different kind of role for him. I thought he did a good job. I love Denzel's speech when he breaks the monitor. Um, yeah. <laughs> he tells the PhDs to like speak English or speak in simpler terms or whatever, answer his question. I love that. Um, they use the same theories back to the future at one point. When they were sending the note back and they're like trying to power it up, that, that big machine. Um, the dude says, I need more cowbell. I thought that was, I started to laugh at that. Um, all this, the destruction from Katrina is still seen in the background because they're filming there. I thought that it was interesting to like highlight, you know, a, a recent event that had happened there since they're filming there and let them, let the people know. I think the interrogation scene with Denzel and Jim Caviezel, I thought that was good. Mm-hmm. The revive me on Denzel's chest was clever that they wrote it on there before they sent him back. And then last treasure is just some of the silly humor throughout. Like Denzel leaves that plant when he's like taking the keys for the ambulance. He's like, make sure you water that. And, <laughs> and then um, when he's interviewing or he's interrogating uh, Jim Caviezel when he. Uh, Jim Caviezel has something really prolific and he's like, you're going to need KY and then just like walks out. (laughs) Just walks out. I don't know. There's like some funny little humor that Denzel does, but above all, I think Denzel kills it in this movie. Like he makes it feel real and he takes kind of some of the sci-fi-ish out of it and makes it more real. I don't know. I think he did really well, but that's my trash and treasure. Bling. What is your trash and treasure? All right. I'm going to go through mine real quickly. So I like the montage after the fairy explosion to kind of you're trying to piece together what happened. I thought it was just a 
good use of cinematography. It was really quick. There's different focal points that people trying to figure out, you know, what's happening here, what's happening there. Um, so I thought that was good. Explaining the science of the, the machine uh, when they mm-hmm. when Denzel finds out, you know, you know what is this machine, and and then all the the people are explaining like we, we stumble upon this by accident, and they kind of explain. I didn't do the deep research to find out how accurate they were, the the science they were talking, but it it still felt very real. That saying, hey, we stumble upon this, we can see into the past. Here's the science behind it. Um, you touch on it, Jason, the angry moment with Denzel when he smashed the matter, <laughs> the monitor. He's like. Okay, is she dead? Like this monitor, boom, that's dead. Yeah. I thought that was just some really good acting chops by Denzel. Um, you guys talked a lot about, about about the good treasures already, so I'm not gonna touch on those. The trash, um, there's quite a few. Um, the first one is the note getting sent to the past, okay? okay? Like the way it's done, like if I'm going to communicate myself to myself, I'm gonna do it in the best way possible. We always talk about, hey, if your future self could talk to your past self, you're gonna be very concise, you're gonna make sure it gets to the right people. Like, he causes the death of his partner, the way the note just kind of shows up and he stumbles upon it, like, that's his fault. Like, <laughs> why aren't you, hey, why aren't you writing the note? Like I said, they, they kind of mentioned, like, you should probably should have wrote it in your own hand handwriting so you can recognize your own writing. Or making sure you 100% place it where you you are going to find it. Like. And then even the note itself is very vague. So if someone stumbles upon it, they're like, is this a real threat, a viable threat? And because you can literally send anything back, you're gonna be very concise about what you're gonna communicate. So I thought that was just done poorly. Like <laughs> When you think about the timing of it, it's like, okay, we're gonna wait till the last possible minute when he's gonna walk out of the room. And yeah. it's like, okay, well maybe Denzel's getting his car. Maybe, maybe put it on the passenger seat. And just say, and then he looks over, he's like, oh, what the fuck is this? I mean, it's his own yeah, put it on his dash, put it in his pocket. I mean, you can literally put stuff from the future anywhere in the past. So, like, just the way it's done, it's just, it's just like, I was just pointing at the screen, like, this is a glaring, like, <laughs> plot hole. Do they even explain how they can specifically position an <laughs> item that they send back in time? Jordan, this is how they explain everything in this movie. All right, lay it out. Can I do X? No, you cannot do X. But we just did X. How did we do X? Next question, please. That's that's literally how they that's literally how they explain everything. It's just like, can we do it? No, we can't do it. Then they immediately proceed to do it, and then they never explain how they did it after. It's yeah. just they just they break their own rules all the time. Where is the dad from the transporter when you need him? Can we do this? Shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so some other trash. Um, Denzel, you said you mentioned Denzel lost. He looked awful in this film. He looked just way out of shape, out of form. Like he, he actually looked like he put on weight in this role. So I, I didn't like that. The score was trash. Like Denzel films, you typically like, there's like some familiar themes. Like oh, when you hear a theme, like oh, that's from that movie. I don't remember any themes from this film. So I thought the score was trash. But this is the guy that did Shrek. I, like I said, that's why I'm a little confused. Like Shrek has some memorable themes, and this film like has no memorable themes in it. Mm. You're worried about Claire dying and you know stuff happening. They talk about you know he Denzel recognizes some of the things that were you know I, this happened or like you need to change your dress, but he still brings her to like the ferry to kind of wrap up and this murder. I'm like, dude, if you want her to live, just leave town. You know, stay in your apartment anything else to like not put yourself in the vicinity of where you die like it just didn't make sense to me 
The other thing, and I think this is the, really the big one that kind of bothered me with this film, this big trash, was the pacing. I feel like, not even like two-thirds, I feel like four-fifths of the movie is them kind of working in the present, and then once you know, they send Denzel into the past, everything just moves super quick. Like boom, boom, like he, you know, he's resuscitated, he steals the ambulance, he just plows it into the house. Okay, they go to Claire's apartment. It just, everything feels like it moves way too fast and you spent the first four-fifths of the movie explaining the signs, doing all this surveillance, and then it just kind of wrap, gets all wrapped up at the very end. Mm-hmm. Didn't sit well with me and that's why I feel like even the ending was kind of like, too buttoned up. Granted, like I said, I don't know if the film was longer. I don't know if maybe there's just a lot of cuts di- done in editing, but I just felt like the pacing was just really off with this film, and that's what really bothered me. Um, one last trash, I don't know if you guys noticed. I felt like, and I know the actors and actresses now, but I feel like Claire looked like a fake Halle Berry. I felt like Claire's dad looked like a fake Billy Bob Thornton. I just, that's when I, when I first saw it, I was just like, these look like other actors, but they're not them kind of thing. So I don't know, that, that just kind of stood out to me the first time I saw it. it, even stood out to me even when I saw it yesterday. So, but I felt like, okay, they're just using, they're on a budget, so they gotta use actors that look like, and actresses that look like other people, but I was just like, ugh. They blew their budget on Denzel and Kilmer. <laughs> and they're like, well. I, I guess. Uh, but that's it, that's, that's my trash and treasure. Speaking of uh, like people looking like something else, like didn't the dad look like uh, Reggie from Nintendo? <laughs> Reggie Fusume? <laughs> yes. yes, he did. <laughs> I thought he. I thought he was gonna say, "My body is ready at any, any fucking moment." Um, but you know, moving on to my trash and treasure. Speaking of lookalikes, I thought uh, Adam Goldberg with the long hair, like he looks a lot like Fernando Alonso. He's like a Spanish Formula One driver, but he looks just like Fernando Alonso the whole movie, and it's it's crazy. But uh, let's start with the uh, let's start with the treasure. I usually go trash first, but I'm gonna start with the treasure. Uh, performances are great. Um, I I really agree with all of you um especially uh jordan how you talked about how like denzel always has a way in movies of talking down to anybody like like he can talk down to thanos and thanos would be defeated it's it's like crazy like i love the scene where like he's asking the question like is she dead you know is the monitor broken i just broke the (laughs) monitor is it broken and like he just doesn't have time for bullshit I, I just love his performance in this movie i thought everybody did pretty did uh did really really well um i like when uh when they make a movie and they take creative liberties with the studio logos so the movie's called deja vu and they do the uh, jerry bruckheimer thing twice so i thought that was really cool um you know i like you know marvel does it all the time with their movies mm-hmm. like they'll they'll mess with the logo in the trailers or like universal for f9 they did the 80s universal thing instead of the the current universal thing so i was like when they take creative liberties with the logos too fast same thing universal it like shifted oh. and it's like the, the chrome rim that's right that's my favorite one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh my god yeah so I, I love i love when people do that shit uh paula Patton is very attractive yes um and uh despite how i feel about the snow white device which i'll get into later um i do like the idea of live streaming slash surveilling the past in real time and i do like uh that whole chase uh, that simultaneous chase uh, in the past and present on the uh, on the freeway. I thought that was really creative. Kind of felt like Mario Kart chasing a ghost. So that was pretty pretty <laughs> funny. And then uh, as far as Denzel going back to the past, I would have died laughing if like he got sent back to the past and he showed up in like an orb of energy, like butt naked, and he's asking somebody for like their shirt, their shoes, and like their motorcycle. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> like I thought it was gonna be like a Terminator prequel or yeah. some shit. That would have been hilarious. And then. Uh, I do like the fact that for the most part, they do wrap up a lot of uh, 
the time travel stuff because you know we talk about the bloody towels we talk about the the message we talk about how his fingerprints are all over the place despite when he enters he's wearing gloves i believe the first time he enters her apartment yeah so like when they said oh dude your fingerprints are all over the place and i like that they opened the door to to suggest you know there's clues that there was another denzel that was in this current time that failed because the same messages are left uh claire is there uh the ambulance is still in the shed and and it and it's exploded so there's a there's a ton of clues to let you know that like this has all happened before and maybe the previous denzel to our denzel failed and it blew up and now this denzel also has to go back to his own past to do the same thing like there's a lot of clues left to suggest that there was another denzel that failed because when he gets the phone call another phone rings in the body bag because he gets a phone call and then his phone also rings at the very beginning of the movie so that means that he was one of the casualties on this boat like his previous future self that came back had also failed so i thought i thought that was like really cool how like it's this is the technically so the the version of denzel that we see at the movie is the third denzel Mm -hmm. so the the one we're following is the second denzel and the denzel uh, that failed to stop the bomb from going off is the first Denzel, the one that's in the body bag. So I thought that was pretty cool. I didn't put that together. I'm going to be honest, but no, that's that's very like prestige, like now. <laughs> yeah, but but it cu- some other little things like when Denzel comes back to like put himself into the orb kind of thing, the guy's like, I knew you'd be back. Like I knew you'd be here. So it's like it's kind of like you're right. Like they were there. Like they stayed. Like Val Kilmer's just chilling, like looking through some shit, and like he's there. He's like, I already knew you'd be back. And it's like, that proves your theory, though. Like, hey, this is not the first attempt at this. Yeah. So they they might have seen, like, whatever the four-hour, four-day window or what is. Like, they might have seen, like, oh, we sent this guy to the past. So we're just going to allow him to go to the past again. Like, that, I didn't even think about that. That's crazy. Like, that they're so chill with sending him back to the past after shutting everything down. They know that they've done it already. They're just going to do it again. Like, Denzel doesn't bang on the door to get in he swipes his card but he swipes it twice and the guy opens the door he's like hey if you swipe it three times you let off all the alarm. i'm just saying like it's weird it's like how can you hear a card swipe like he's there waiting knowing i don't know it's kind of weird that it's proving your theory of the third yeah the third denzel yeah okay. yeah it's crazy that they're they're just like and, and they probably like the way they're so cool with bringing him on and just telling him everything and doing the letter shit like they probably already know that a lot of this stuff is going to happen and they're so adamant about not being able to change it is because they probably already know that the first denzel failed which is why they're so adamant about nothing being able to change which is insane that takes a whole different turn on the movie makes me appreciate it a little more so i'm sorry like now it makes me it makes me think like so in the beginning of the movie i i missed this part i guess so when Denzel gets a phone call, his phone rings. Yes. But another phone in a body bag rings at the same time. Yes. He picks up his phone and he looks and there's another, there's a body bag that has a cell phone ring coming from it. Mm-hmm. That's the very first clue that there was another Denzel. See, I, I missed that too. Yes. Yeah. fucking wild. And I'm not going to go back and watch the entire movie, but I'll wa- go back and watch the beginning of it just to see because that, you're right, that that's like the start of your theory right there yeah because like how else would he have seen the same notes seen the blood got his fingerprints all over the place etc you know like when the guy calls him and says like oh your shit's all over the place or when he gets the uh the phone call he gets the phone number and he calls uh what's her name back he calls claire back 
You know, like all of these things had to have happened in his own timeline in order for that to make sense. That's a trip. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. super weird. Uh, but now trash. <laughs> uh, one thing that I do not like in movies is when they make it rain out of nowhere for that dramatic effect. Like we just saw this uh, fairy explode. You know, Denzel's conducting his investigation. And then he gets on his little boat, little pontoon boat or whatever he's on. And it's pouring raining. And then he pulls up to the shore and it's dry as fuck. And I'm just kind of like, I, I get it. We're at a part of the country where it rains intermittently, you know, like the south and like the, the east coast is a lot like that. But I'm just kind of like, did we really need that rain or did we do it for dramatic effect? Like, I, I don't like when they do that. Like, even in the ending fight in John Wick, when he fights the Russian, it just starts raining for no reason. Like, it, it's stupid to me. I, I hate when, when we do that. It's like, I think we can convey the severity of the situation without rain, but... Uh, same thing y'all were saying like Denzel touching shit all the time putting it in his mouth touching dead bodies without gloves like you cannot do that uh, Claire's dad I don't know I just wish they had a different actor I, I couldn't feel any emotion from the guy and look like he's dealing with the death of his daughter nobody knows how you know any individual person would react in that event but it's just kind of like he just felt kind of off to me I don't know like I, I'm watching this and I'm just like you gotta get gotta get somebody that can convey that a little more. And Denzel's kind of cold in it too, like just asking questions. But I think he's just asking because like the dad isn't like really like he's maybe in shock. Maybe I'll give that to him, but he's not really emoting a lot of emotions. Like where he's like crying and like like can't speak and just anything. He's just kind of chilling there, like maybe in a state of shock. Yeah, he might have been in a state of shock. Yeah, and and, and that's a possibility too. But like even even then, like I just felt like. Nah, this ain't it. Could have done some more. Yeah, yeah could have done a little more. I kind of thought, like, Denzel, when he went back to the past, would have tried to get in touch with the dad and just been like, hey, you know, if somebody ever comes to question you about your daughter or whatever, you know, make sure you give them, like, pictures. Because that seems to be the initial motivation ooh, 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 for him, ooh, ooh, ooh. right? We, we didn't have time. We had, like, 20 minutes to wrap up the film, so. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, can't do that in a montage. No. Um, my other trash is, uh, once again, you know, 9-11. Um, how are we, five years after, this, after the uh, September 11th attacks, not searching these cars for explosives when they get on the ferry? Like, I go to a baseball game and I'm getting patted down. I go to any little tiny concert and I'm getting patted down. You feel me? Like we get all these cars on a ferry with hundreds of people on them in one of the largest cities, one of the major metropolitan areas of the country. And we don't check any of these cars at all. Like this SUV doesn't have tinted windows. It just rolls up with barrels of explosives and nobody looks inside. Like nobody, nobody says like, oh my God, like we should look in these cars as well as search the people. That didn't make any sense to me. Um, and especially because it's a military related transport because they're sending all these uh, Navy personnel down the river. It's just kind of like when you have this many military personnel, like you think security would be even higher, you know, yeah. considering. So I, I thought that was trash. Uh, I feel like this movie kind of jumps the shark because like we said before, you would never know this was a science fiction movie up until maybe like 40, 45 minutes into the movie where it's just like, by the way, time travel, by the way, it's a time machine. And it's just like, wait, wait, that came out of left field. Uh, we talked about this off mic in pre-production, but like when you have a high concept movie where you're where the, the concept is the main selling point for the movie, you have to introduce that first so that way people understand the type of world we're living in. You have to set the rules first so that way we can get to these so we can have the adventure that we're going to go on. 
Minority Report does it. The opening sequence is pre-crime. We very specifically establish the rules of pre-crime, what it is, and what cannot be done with pre-crime. And then the whole movie is predicated off of that. Inception, we talk about what Inception is or like dream diving or whatever, and we set the rules for that. And then we move forward and the entire uh, journey that our characters go on is based around that and they do not break the rules. So with this movie, you know, yeah, we have little clues and shit here and there and it makes for a nice mystery thriller. But like you watch this movie and we get to time travel and the explanation is shitty. It's abrupt. It comes out of nowhere. The people operating the machine don't even know how the fuck it works. The audience is kind of left out of the loop. We don't know the rules. Like, yeah, we get the uh, the wormhole explanation that we see a lot of in a lot of movies, but like, it doesn't it doesn't set hard and fast rules for for what this universe this universe's uh, science fiction aspect is. And I think that's a that's a huge negative for this movie. Uh, civilian endangerment driving a car he should have like five stars on gta i don't know why yeah um i felt so bad for uh the female scientist because she is going through it watching like multiple murders in the past happen like she she really like pulled off uh selling how like traumatizing watching all of that shit is Uh, i'm not a fan of the bright flashes that uh, they use in the establishing shots Mm -hmm. so it's like an establishing shot boom flash flashlight to a cut of another establishing shot Mm -hmm. i i just kind of felt like that's overkill just do just do one shot maybe cut to another one we don't need the flashing lights Mm -hmm. um the villain for this movie i feel is another trash because i feel like we talk about time travel we talk about not being able to undo the past we talk about Uh, fate and destiny and all that other shit and this guy is all about that now we don't know maybe he met uh denzel's character previously prior to blowing up the ferry because you know we saw denzel's ambulance in the present day uh if you will shack exploded so maybe he had a brief encounter with denzel which is why he's able to say like the fate stuff and all that but you would never know it based on what might have been cut out and i kind of feel like the concept is the main draw and the main conflict and the villain is irrelevant entirely so we're just we're just trying to use time travel to stop a tragedy from happening as opposed to stopping this guy i feel like the best villains in a high concept movie utilize or directly antagonize the concept that we're introducing in a film so we have pre-crime and we had the guy that was manipulating it right so that way he could get away with shit you know, we have our protagonist that understands and uses it. We have another guy that uh, manipulates and uses it for his own game. And they're, the conflict or the concept is at the center of their conflict, right? Uh, same thing with uh, Inception. There is no villain, therefore the concept can shine. And I'm using these two as examples. Like, you either need to remove the villain entirely and let the concept be the show, or you need to make the villain have access to or directly antagonize the means with which. Uh, our protagonists are able to save the day and that's that's kind of where i feel like this villain is kind of weak i wish the villain had access to or knowledge of uh the use of time travel or maybe he he knows that this isn't the first denzel he's encountered maybe he's like oh i've met you before you tried to stop me that day all this and that and like if you say that i could vibe with it because he he talks about all this destiny and fate and not being able to undo it and i'm like just say you've seen him before and that would make make you whole as a villain call him number two or yeah. something like that yeah. i don't know something i, I mean it, subtle. It, yeah absolutely subtle i mean it could have been something as simple as i see you have a different shirt on today or 
uh, it looks like you put on 40 pounds overnight or something like that. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I just think, like, for this villain to really, really be sold, like, he has to have some direct involvement with the concept of this movie. And I just kind of feel like uh, he's, he's kind of left as an afterthought, despite how menacing he is. And I, and I think the guy did a good job. It's just, like, he, he's not really involved in, like, the, the main stakes of this movie. And then, you know, I got a lot of bunch of shit, but uh, my one of my biggest trashes is that I wish... Uh, our Denzel made the choice to stay in the car as opposed to just being trapped. I feel like it would have been a little more heroic. Maybe he's aware of like a paradox. Maybe he's like, hey, there can't be two of me in this time. Yeah. Maybe the only way he can uh, save her is by getting stuck himself, but that's not the case at all. You know, uh, he gets her out, she swims out with her hands attached to a steering wheel. I can't swim at all, so I'm amazed she did that. You'll never find me at a pool. And but like him, he tries to break out and he's stuck. I wish it would have been a choice on his part to stay behind and say, oh, it has to be this way, etc." Like have his, uh, have his uh, Spock moment, if you will, from Star Trek. So it kind of made his sacrifice like weak overall. Like I wish that was a choice of his. Yeah, with this film, like being a time travel film, I'm looking at like comparing other time, like we've seen Groundhog's Day, uh, you know, Edge of Tomorrow kind of touches on that. Even the, an, an obscure movie called The Butterfly Effect with Ashton Kutcher where he's always changing the timeline. The only way that he can actually get the best ending is if like his death and his detriment to himself, that's the only way that he can make things right. And that's a problem with this film being about time. You don't really get any of the times like, hey, maybe, you know, they, they should have touched on like, I failed this many times before and, and you know you know the only way I can do right is which ultimately happens he ends up killing himself kind of thing but we don't get that because it's we see bits and pieces of oh this stuff has happened because of stuff I've done already but it's not like you know where you see him oh we did this and it failed we did this and it failed we did something differently to make it different like we don't get that in a film about time travel we don't get that we don't get that <laughs> dr strange moment where yeah. it's just like there's only one way this will succeed and that is if you die yeah like we don't get that dr strange tony stark interaction where yeah. it's just like there's only one way this happens and that is if you die if one of these scientists with a time machine would have said like look man you can't change anything you keep trying to escape or something like that and then maybe he's like maybe this time i don't try to escape or something like that maybe i don't try to live maybe my goal is just to stop it maybe that would help i don't know but that's my trash and treasure now let's move on to our ticket prices jordan how much are you gonna pay to watch deja vu this movie had a lot of good things going for it most of all it was an entertaining movie to watch I've always been a big fan of Denzel Washington, and he really seemed to be delivering on his performance today. Paula Patton um, was excellent and, you know, a good-looking gal. Um, they had uh, Val Kilmer in there as well, so it was a pretty well-rounded outcast. There were a couple of things here and there that kind of detracted to it, but for the most part, it was an enjoyable movie that I would be happy to pay $10 to see. All right, so we got 10. Jason, how much are you paying? I, I agree with you. I think um, Denzel was great. I think Jesus Christ was really good in this too. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I, th I think although they don't establish the time travel from the beginning, it's an interesting take to do it midway through the movie too, or you know, a third of the way through the movie. 
I was saying when I first got here that I was like, man, I forgot that I did like this movie. Like, I, was, I wasn't I was dreading watching this again, but I was like, oh, I don't know if I really want to watch this. And I watched it again, and I was like, you know what? I was kind of captivated watching it. And I think it's the performances that really do it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the same. I'm going to go 10 bucks. Bling, how much are you paying? Uh, I'm on the same page with all you guys. It's, it's a $10 ticket for me, just because when you can also compare it to other Denzel films, you know, this one is not better than some of the ones he's done in the past, uh, especially him just coming off doing Inside Man, which I thought was a way better film. So for him to do this film, it it still kind of felt what felt weird to me, like he's playing another authority figure in a film he just released the same year. I'm like like a, like a police type, you know, government official kind of film. So. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, it's still an enjoyable film. I, I would watch it. I think if it came on, I would watch it. Uh, but when you compare it to his other films, it's it's not more than $10. So that's my that's my price. <laughs> I'm also going to go $10 on this. There's some really, really interesting conceptual stuff in here. But I feel like the movie just misses the mark in certain places. Like, I, like, like you, Jason, like, I forgot how good this was, even if I'd seen it all the way previously. But... Uh, like, yeah, I was intrigued the whole time. I thought it was a good thriller. The whole time travel thing, like halfway, or like you said, a third through the movie, like throws you off. And uh, I feel like there could have been better execution here and there, but all the performances are great. Uh, it's good seeing Val Kilmer in this movie because I just watched that Val documentary. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, I got to appreciate him a lot more in this movie. But yeah, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go 10. It's solid, it's really good. That's what I'm paying. We're paying uh, ten dollars today. Yeah, ten dollars. Ten dollars, sweet. Yeah. yeah. But if you could go back in time, go would you add Tom? In time. <laughs> <laughs> back in. Would you add Tom Cruise to this movie? And who would he be? Wasn't Tom Cruise already in a movie like this? Minority Report. Yeah. <laughs> Edge yeah. of Tomorrow. Yeah. It's a lot of time shit. I mean, I, I always push for Tom Cruise to play villain role, so I always gonna say Carol Orstad. Have him be the villain just because you know it's not typical Tom Cruise role, so that's my choice. That's a good one, I like that one. Um, I don't know, it's it's tough. He could have been one of the scientists there. Um, him trying to explain the, 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 the time machine science, or like, <laughs> or, or his partner that gets killed, like just a little cameo, like yeah, him being yeah. the partner. He could have been the fairy, could have been the fairy too, mm. fairy godmother. <laughs> from Shrek I don't know <laughs> maybe like the director of the FBI or, yeah. or whatnot but yeah not, nothing major Bruce Greenwood's so. character kind of yeah, 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 okay. yeah just something something small yeah alright well hey that's it for this episode and uh, in the words of Tom Cruise where's the coffee pot <laughs> <laughs> that's it for this episode of $20 Ticket be sure to check us out on Instagram Facebook and Twitter at $20 Ticket that's two zero dollar ticket for more content follow us on spotify subscribe on apple Podcasts, and if you've got the time leave us a review if you have any questions comments or suggestions send them to twenty dollar ticket at gmail.com that's two zero dollar ticket at gmail.com thank you for listening i didn't have enough time to read this fucking article i'm sorry guys gotta make time for i know <laughs> <laughs> you need sleep yeah. shit man Counting the whole picture of like <laughs> Newcastle or something. Oh, oh I can't even. That's oh, disgusting. That sounds, that sounds too thick. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds too thick. Yeah. 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 I'm like, damn. Yeah. She just, she just, just hit her in the back of the head with it. Like, oh, that sounds thick. Oh. <laughs> Slap it on the phone a couple of times. Oh, that sounds thick. <laughs>
wish I had two more hands so, <laughs> so I can give those things fall down. down. <laughs>